To our audience members tuning in today, a warm welcome and hello to you all. Thank you for joining us in this session where we'll be discussing about Austroad's guideline for minimum levels of asset componentization. I'm the moderator in this session. My name is Eliz. If you're experiencing any technical issues, you can contact me by using the chat box that you could see in your sidebar. This session is proudly brought to you by Austroads. We support our member organisations, those listed on this slide, to deliver an improved road transport network. Our collective approach delivers value for money, encourages shared knowledge and drives consistency for road users. Here at Austroads, we use a program management approach where each program focuses on an operational area of the road system. This Austroads project falls under the assets program. In this session today, our presenter will speak for approximately 35 minutes. We then have 15 minutes at the end where we answer your question. As always, we are recording today's session and we'll email you after the webinar when it's available to view on our website. And the slides to this webinar is also available to download in the handout section. We encourage you to participate by asking any questions or providing any comments. You can type your questions into the questions box that you could see into the sidebar at any stage. To help us answer your questions as best as we can, we ask that you indicate the slide number your question relates to. We'll then answer them at the end during the question time. The content in this webinar is based on a guideline Austro's recently released. You can download this report in the handout section in your sidebar or through the link shown in this slide. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker for today. Today is a little bit different as we have one presenter who will be presenting the content to you. We then have our Austro's project manager who will be answering your questions in the Q&A. So our presenter today is Gary Rikers, who is the manager asset management at WSP Opus and is a technical and stakeholder lead for this project. He has 20 years of experience across the transport industry, both managing large infrastructure portfolios and providing advisory services to road management authorities. Hi, Gary, how are you today? Well, thanks, Elise. And our Q&A speaker is Andrew Golding, who is the Director of Transport System Asset Management with the Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland. Over the past 20 years, he has been at the forefront of development of asset management capability systems, information and processes within the department. Hi, Andrew, thanks for joining us today. We'll hear from you at the end. Hi, Liz, it's great to be here. So on this slide, we have the topics that you'll be learning about today, and I'll now pass it on to Gary. Thank you, Elise, and welcome everybody to today's session around componentization of road infrastructure. The agenda, as you can see, uh, we'll start off with a background introduction, and then we'll go through a series of uh, topic areas that effectively cover the why, what, and how uh, this particular project came about, what it is, and uh, how, if you so choose, you can proceed with implementation. So under the background and introduction, the team members that we've listed here, there were many people that provided input. This is a selection of Andrew Golding, who will be taking the Q&A at the end of today, Susan Chamberlain, who was the delivery side project leader, and myself, who's been the technical and stakeholder lead throughout the journey. We've had quite a 
fortunate enough to have quite a strong review team uh, covering, as is typical for Austroads, the uh, project working group, the appropriate task force, in this instance the assets task force, and then ultimately the Austroads board as approver and publisher. The one I jumped over there that's a little bit different to other Austroads projects is the finance and audit industry representatives who uh, we've had uh, quite active support through this process, which we're appreciative of. You can see there a uh, number of people. Those are the people who've been very active contributors over the two-year journey, and as they are the project working group representatives. So the project purpose. I'm not going to read this word for word. I'm just going to uh, draw out a couple of the key points. So one of the key things here is the guideline that has been produced is looking to drive improved integration of asset management and financial management disciplines. Importantly, the guideline does provide some prescriptive guidance and it also targets providing guidance on minimum levels of service. So the two key words have been prescriptive and minimum. We hope that the guideline will prove to be a benchmark for both stakeholders and users, being road management authorities, whether it be state and territory or local government, but also the auditing uh, part of the industry. And finally, uh, with successful implementation of this particular guideline across a number of authorities, it will in the future, we hope, form the basis to enable uh, more equitable reform initiatives. So the why section, we will target in the order of five minutes for that. A little quote here from a best practice guide, the Australian Infrastructure Financial Management Manual produced by IPWEA. The classification of asset is one of the most important steps in financial reporting, asset accounting and asset management. Asset management managers rely on an asset hierarchy classification for service planning, management and cost and performance reporting. Assets should be classified to suit both financial reporting and asset management purposes. The needs of accountants and asset managers should be identified and considered fully in developing the asset classification and hierarchy. So this little quote here really demonstrates one of the key premises of this project. As per the earlier purpose slide, we're looking for better integration of financial management and asset management. And a key part of that is having a common approach to asset classification structure, which is central to this guideline. Listed a few dot points there of where different parts of a given road management authority would typically work together in the utilisation of an asset classification structure. But importantly, what I want to point out here is that there are many different ways to classify assets. The three most common ways that we use when we set up a, an information management system would be around the asset breakdown itself around the function of the asset, and also around the location of the asset. And the center of all of those is the actual asset item itself. There are other ways to classify, such as local government boundary, et cetera. But the point of this slide is to demonstrate that the asset classification structure we're talking about in this guideline is purely around the physical asset breakdown. I've just flagged there some relevant accounting standard terminology in regards to physical asset breakdown. So the terms many of you will have heard uh, many times is asset class, component and item. And we'll revisit those terms uh, quite a few times throughout this presentation. So what's the problem? A national perspective. Road agencies, they perform similar functions, similar types of assets. National reform initiatives do rely on the provision of data by these road authorities and 
ideally, that data would be quite comparable to increase the confidence of the decisions that are made from that data. However, asset accounting standards are very flexible in their nature and necessarily so because they deal with so many different types of industries, they are very principle based. But as we said before, in this particular instance, we're dealing with road authorities who manage similar asset portfolios, deliver similar services for the community. And therefore, uh, we looked at specifically at levels of asset componentization and associated terminology. And we asked the question, well, why does it need to be different? Ultimately, from a whole of state or across jurisdiction perspective, this lack of consistent results that results from interpretation of accounting standards can lead to uh, reduced confidence in comparing financial data and financial statements. And of course, uh, because this data is used uh, to inform national reform initiatives, it can inhibit the effective implementation of those reform initiatives. From an individual organisational perspective, slightly different view. Many of you will have heard of the term stereotype, uh, which we use to reflect a certain uh, length of road and say yeah, it's got a certain functional classification and therefore we'll apply uh, some unit rates to it. So we adopt the concept of Monday equivalent for a section of road. And that's good practice doing that based on functional road classifications. However, these uh, unit rates are often applied, typically include a whole range of asset types. Typically it's a high value one, such as pavements, for example, surfacing's in there as well, with a whole range of other low value ones thrown in there, such as signs, guardrail, line marking, whatever it may be. Now that works and complies with accounting standards, but it is not necessarily the uh, best way to, complete a task such that it's useful for uh, ongoing asset management purposes. The lack of transparency that can result in that, uh, in that stereotype approach can lead to inefficient organisational costs associated with data management. For example, having an asset classification structure for valuation capitalisation, a separate one for asset management functions. If you've got the same data in two different spots, you expect it to be less efficient. Uh, equally, the uh, lack of ability to leverage that financial valuation data due to its lack of transparency um, in its breakdown typically means it's not very useful for forward planning purposes. So we've talked about a couple of different perspectives in those last few slides. From an individual agency perspective, we want to make sure that asset management requirements are ticked off, asset classification structure central to that, accounting standard requirements are, are ticked off. And all agencies will effectively achieve that. Whether they do it in an integrated fashion is another story. From a cross-agency perspective, so moving beyond the individual agency perspective, when you look at a cross-agency perspective, the consistent terminology is a critical one. And as I'll show in later slides, uh, we don't necessarily have consistent terminology across industry as, as it is right now. Uh, that integrated approach that we're trying to achieve here is just demonstrated by that particular uh, schematic diagram. The diagram effectively shows different levels of an asset classification structure and how different business functions can use that same structure if carefully planned. So ultimately, we're looking for one classification structure for asset management, financial management and financial reporting. So the project goals for this particular project, uh, I've got them listed there being, uh, we have to comply with accounting standards. That's, that's a given. That's one of the business functions we're looking at. Better integration of asset management and financial management. That was part of the purpose statement earlier. 
facilitate harmonization. That's a little bit about the common terminology uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, increase the ease of cross-jurisdictional comparability and ultimately reduce some barriers for regulatory reform. So to do this, the project was tasked with developing prescriptive guidance. And how do we achieve that? Uh, we've decided we need to codify uh, that prescription and really we focused on three key areas as shown there. There's the terminology, the asset classification structure itself and the item definition within that asset classification structure. We'll talk more about that as we go on. So moving on to the what component of the presentation. The actual project will deliver three key things. There is a guideline, a supporting research report, and this webinar content. The project has taken approximately two years to deliver, and you just see a bit of a breakdown now of the key steps of the project. I'm not going to go into any great detail, other than to note that we did have an extensive literature review and stakeholder survey, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. So the scope of the project. From a financial valuation or capitalisation perspective, when you're dealing with current replacement cost methodologies, they're some of the key variables that are utilised in a process. This project excludes all of those things in the red box. And for good reason, those things can often do, for very good reason, uh, change from organisation to organisation. But when we were formulating uh, this particular project brief, what we realised is we couldn't come up with a good reason why the componentization approach in organisations who deliver similar functions for similar asset portfolios couldn't see a good reason why the componentization should be different, hence this project was born. And again, to reiterate, minimum levels of componentization for the improved integration of asset management, financial management and reporting is what we're focused on. Another way to look at the scope is asset classes. This is an Austroads project, so we focus on road infrastructure assets. Those other asset classes typically managed by a road authority are not part of the scope. Importantly, the asset types that are included within the asset classification structure do come from an existing uh, document that Austroads has published and is in fact currently reviewing, and that is the Austroads Data Standard for Road Management and Investment. So we're looking to maintain that consistent alignment between those two key documents. So terminology. Out of the literature review, this became quite apparent that some of the terminology used is not used consistently. As I said earlier, there are three terms that are used by accounting standards, as a class, component and item. We found as we went through a range of different documents, whether they were industry in principle guides or organisational manuals, there's a whole range of different categories of documents we looked at, uh, that they all had slightly different interpretations. To give one example, the description of servicing, a pavement servicing, in NZTA they referred to it as a subcomponent, in Queensland a subclass, and in South Australia a component. So, what we discovered pretty quickly is that the many in principle guides, although they deliver great guidance to the industry, they don't adequately drive a consistent approach that leads to a level of harmonisation that'll help facilitate reform. So terminology in this guide, we did confirm that the accounting concepts of asset class component, those two terms are really not sufficient to describe a very complex uh, infrastructure portfolio. So this is what we came up with. It's a six level classification. Uh, the first two levels there being 
asset class and asset subclass, they are in effect the same as, in accounting terms, asset class. And then similarly, levels three, four, and five there, being asset type, asset subtype, and asset component, those three levels are the same as component in asset, sta um, in asset standard terminology. So again, just to reiterate, what we're looking for is a single asset classification structure that deals with asset management functions, deals with financial management functions, and deals with financial reporting. And that six level one is what we came up with. The six level there, don't really need it for financial management, but uh, as we all understand, uh, when it comes to asset management and engineering maintenance, usually lead, need even more detail. So you know, that's acknowledged in this structure. We also found from a terminology perspective that there are different approaches to how an item is defined within an asset classification structure. Again, the same structure that we've got in the guideline is shown there. And what we did is we come up with a floating item concept. Now the level which an asset item is recognised within an organisation may differ depending on the item definition approach. In effect, it's a little hard to read on this slide, but it says an individual item within an asset group may be recognised at level two, three or four of this asset classification structure. And what we did is we built an item test within the guideline, which is the core part of the guideline. Stakeholder engagement, I'll flick through this bit quite quickly. Uh, suffice to say, we spread the net quite wide. From a government perspective, perspective, we spoke to state and territory authorities, we looked at federal agencies, and we spoke to local governments directly and also through their representative peak bodies. A different split, split of stakeholder groups is a functional split. So we spoke to asset owners, of course, they are our uh, Australia's member authorities, but as I said, we cast the net quite wide. We spoke to funders, uh, treasuries, treasury development, grants commission, advisory associations, and a range of different uh, parts of the auditing industry. The logic here is we're looking at one classification structure that uh, drives a number of functions, and therefore there are a lot of stakeholders. Importantly, when we went out for our stakeholder survey, we recognised that different uh, parts of the industry brought different um, benefits to the stakeholder survey. So we split it into two distinct sets of questions, technical engineering and financial auditor. To our pleasant surprise, we had almost a 50-50 split between those groups. Uh, so it was, it was quite a good representation from both of those groups. Equally, we asked the question, the fundamental question, um, you know, do you think we really need the guideline? And again, we were pleasantly surprised with the overwhelming response of 94% saying yes. The small percentage that said probably not required, we're pretty happy with the in principle stuff on the market as it is right now, but the majority of people recognise those broader benefits as shown by that second graph. Key ones being comparability and consistency. So the research report, as I said before, the research report is, is supports the guideline. And I'm not gonna go into any detail here other than to just uh, show the high level uh, headings within that research report there. As I mentioned earlier, literature review and stakeholder survey were key. There's a bit there in discussion dimensions. Importantly, there's also quite a bit on the impact assessment and transition statement. So if you're looking for some of the um, uh, greater level of detail on which the guidelines were based, I encourage you to refer to that particular research report. But ultimately, it's there to support the guideline, which is what the majority of this session will be on. Uh, so I'll move on to that section. 
So the guideline structure itself, uh, effectively two parts, uh, an overview and an application, but then supported by a number of attachments. We've got the item test process workflow, the classification structure itself, uh, the item test worksheet, which is an important one to capture the outputs. There's a bit on the conformance statement with accounting standards and a hypothetical case study, which tries to put this into a more a human perspective. So, you know, tries to draw upon some of the challenges that people face when implementing. So I'm going to go through this in a little bit more detail. So the guideline provides a structured approach ultimately for two key outputs to identify the item definition approach and the associated minimum inventory data requirements. We're not presuming that because we're going to value something that we need to have component level detailed information about every individual uh, piece of asset out there in the network. It's horses for courses. To demonstrate that, the item definition approach, we've effectively got four different approaches here. The average weighted approach, the network asset approach, a simple asset or complex asset. And I'll talk more about what they mean as we go on. But related to those uh, item definition approaches, we have some uh, inventory data requirements, and that could go anywhere from the detailed component level inventory, typically for high value, high risk assets, to a full asset inventory, not necessarily component level, uh, to you start to get into your lower value assets, maybe sample data is enough, maybe if it's very low value, desktop assumptions are enough. So I'm now going to have a slide on each of the key components within the guideline. And to try and make it easy to follow, I've put some uh, pull balls in here and also categorise those various components into inputs, methods and outputs. So for inputs, key one being the asset classification structure itself. Now within the guideline, that's in Appendix B and you'll see a bit of a uh, screenshot of it here. I want to point out that level one, level two and level three, uh, in brackets there, you'll see it's prescribed. Uh, whereas level four and level five, they're examples only. Uh, that's, a, that's a critical uh, aspect of the particular guideline. So again, using that accounting standard terminology, level one and two relates to asset class. Levels three, four and five relates to component. And the item recognition level will be dependent on the item test, which will come shortly. Importantly, level two there, asset subclass, is a level at which we anticipate those organisations who choose to implement the guideline will recognise in their notes to financial statements those particular level two asset subclasses. So asset class is a term that gets used in different contexts. As I said before, we're trying to get consistent terminology here so the accountants and engineers can use this equally. When it comes to asset class, it has specific meaning in, a, uh, in accounting standards and Ultimately, we've captured that meaning uh, in this guideline. In effect, road infrastructure is the asset class. Below that, the asset subclasses. This is where we uh, hope you will identify um, detail within your notes to the financial statements. We've got uh, six in total, roads, roadside, drainage, mechanolec, and structures. And the sixth one 
is land under roads. Now, the reason it's um, crossed out there is every state and territory uh, treats land under roads a little bit differently. So it's actually excluded uh, from the calculations within the uh, item test. Uh, so just to note that, but it still should be um, represented within the uh, notes, the financial statements, where your particular state or territory um, manages land under roads as part of road infrastructure. Asset type or level three, I haven't listed them all here. I think we've got about 32 or 33 of them in total, uh, but that's uh, the details are within Appendix B of the guideline. Now, the gross replacement cost estimate themselves, well, that part of the item test will typically be applied to level two, or level three. And the way that would typically be done would be the same way you would uh, be looking for cost estimation as part of a normal capitalization valuation type of process. So previous financial year valuation information, cost reports come out of your respective information management systems, analysis of current contract schedules are the most common ways uh, to estimate those, uh, those figures. So onto the item test itself, which is central to the guideline. It's the third component of the guideline we're talking about here. And as I said on the last slide, it can be applied at level two or level three. The item test, uh, it's dependent on the percentage gross replacement cost, which we spoke about in the previous slide, but it's also dependent on a few qualifying questions. Now those qualifying questions need a little bit of explanation. I'll do that briefly here, but there's more detail in the guideline. Uh, the first one, is it practical to apply an average weighted unit rate to a group of assets? An example would be roadside. Are items in an asset type common? An example would be signs. Now, for example, we're saying there uh, are all of the regulatory signs, you know, pretty much a standard size, have a similar unit rate. If so, perhaps that might lead you down a network asset approach. If not, uh, then perhaps that might lead you down uh, an alternate simple asset approach. Is it practical to split items into components? Now, most people can relate with uh, this example being earthworks. Earthworks are usually a highly valuable part of your uh, portfolio of assets, um, but even though they may be high value, uh, it's pretty hard and many would say not appropriate to break it down into further components. And that's an example where it's might be high value, but it's not practical to split further. So two key parts of this guideline effectively do the same thing, but are shown in two different ways. Table one within the guidelines is in part two of the application. It um, spells out the gross replacement cost percentage and the various qualifying questions to give you the key outputs of what is the uh, item definition approach recommended and the associated minimum inventory data requirements recommended. Similarly, the Appendix A item test process workflow will lead you to the same outcome. Different people uh, like to look at these sort of processes different ways. We provided two ways that are complementary. So the item definition approach itself, I mentioned the four ones before, and I'll just give that in a little bit more detail. So as you'd expect, if a particular asset type is high value, it can bring uh, benefits to the organization. And so if it's high value, it brings high benefit. Therefore, you would typically be looking at having quite a detailed data set to describe that particular asset. So a complex asset, typically uh, we're talking 
for pavement assets, it's probably somewhere between 30, 35% for many organisations. That's that's quite high uh, in percentage terms. So usually we'd uh, hope to see the pavement split into appropriate components. In this instance, base and sub-base is the example provided. Average weighted asset at the other end of the scale, pretty low value, perhaps not as much benefit in capturing the data. Therefore, that more simplistic approach uh, might apply to a whole group of asset types. An example there might maybe roadside assets or the roadside asset class. The two in between, simple assets, example would be culverts, and network assets, uh, signs being the example. Ultimately, what we're talking about there is a greater level of complexity uh, when we move uh, from the high value assets up to the low value asset types. Now that complexity component is a segue into the next slide. Oh, sorry, just a note there, gross replacement cost percentage and qualifying questions is how we determine which of those four item definition, definition approaches will be recommended. Similarly, the same two things, Gross replacement cost percentage and qualifying questions are used to identify that minimum inventory data requirements. The four examples are shown there. And as you can see, uh, it goes from a simple level to a more complex level. Uh, again, aligning with that previous slide showing the more complexity you have, you're probably on the bottom dot point component level. Uh, the less complexity you have, you might be up around the average weighted desktop assumption approach. So I had actually seven items, but uh, the analogy here being you need to sink the eight ball to win. In this particular analogy, uh, the eight ball relates to uh, attachment C, which is the item test worksheet. In effect, that's where you record all the outcomes of going through this process. So ultimately, that item test worksheet can be used to record the gross replacement cost percentage estimates. Now that's at both the subclass level and the asset type level. Answers to item test qualifying questions. Any data gaps that you may identify, and ultimately the two outputs being recommended item definition approach and minimum inventory data requirements. Importantly, the notes to this particular worksheet in attachment C, they align directly to the steps within the guideline. So that just makes it a bit easier to follow. Finally, I've just got a slide or two here on some key procedural requirements, which are throughout the document, but just wanted to draw out the importance of them. So attachment B uh, prescribes the minimum requirements for levels one, two, and three of the asset classification structure. Each level of the asset classification structure must have a many-to-one relationship with the level immediately above it. So effectively, they roll up to the high levels. For the purpose of applying the item test, the gross replacement cost of the road infrastructure asset class uh, is to exclude land under roads. As I said before, that's because of the different approaches state by state. Implementation of the guideline includes separate identification of asset class categories as a minimum in the notes to financial statements. I am reiterating some of the points made before, but they're just some key points to emphasize. An entity may choose or may decide uh, not to value uh, certain asset types, typically if they're very low value. And the logic here, if they're highly immaterial or they, oh sorry, highly material and they provide negligible value to uh, an asset management function of determining what the inventory might be, then uh, an organisation may choose not to value a particular asset type. 
Importantly, any such decisions uh, will be subject to an auditing process and those uh, asset types that are not valued should be identified within the notes of the financial statements. So that brings us to the end of the what question, but many of you will be starting to ponder some of the challenges associated with implementation. So we've got this section on the how, which will hopefully shed some light on some of the key things that we've uh, investigated within this project. Before we go into too much detail, what does project success look like? There's a few different angles here. So first answer, organisations adopt the guideline as part of the next revaluation cycle. That's the financial management perspective. Second answer, organisations adopt the asset classification structure for their asset management functions. Obviously, the asset management function, uh, asset management perspective. As you recall from the purpose of the project, we're looking for better integration between those two perspectives. Auditors use the guideline to supplement the annual audit of financial statements. So we're really hoping the auditing industry uh, will acknowledge uh, the different interpretations of accounting standards, recognise the need for consistent terminology and approach, and by extension, utilise this uh, guideline as a, uh, as a base to assist that. And ultimately, increase consistency in financial statements as individual organisations implement uh, will allow greater comparability across those agencies down the track, which will ultimately lead to uh, improved uh, reform outcomes. So implementation at a incredibly high level. Uh, this is at, straight out of the guideline. There are four uh, points there. Now the first point there is really what the guidelines is about. It's applying the item test up to the point of the fair value, fair, fair value calculation. And this should be a relatively quick and easy process. I would imagine an organisation could do this in a week, but realistically with the consultation involved, you might allow up to three months to do this first step. But importantly, it's the organisational specific implementation planning that comes after that first step that the guideline mostly focuses on that will take the time. So the implementation for steps two, three, and four there, uh, we recommend within the guideline that you allow at least a 12 month lead time to be able to address some of the um, implementation challenges that you'll face. Let's talk a little bit about those. So that's step one I mentioned. Yeah, again, this is a uh, an image coming out of Appendix A, the uh, item test workflow. And a reminder that its key purpose is to provide recommendations for item definition approach and minimum inventory data requirements. In effect, what we're saying is apply that part of the uh, particular workflow. The gross replacement cost estimates that feed into that, uh, this is a repetition of an earlier slide, there are three key areas where you typically pull that information from. Um, it's important that people acknowledge that you'll have to draw upon uh, organisational information to achieve that. Now that first part, that step one, you know, maybe up to three months at the, at the upper end, but then 12 plus months to do the next bit, that's steps two, three and four. So what type of collaboration would be required? These are some of the base expectations every organisation would expect to do as part of the implementation. You're going to have to have your asset manager, your finance manager and your IT manager all working together. You're going to have to be talking to your auditor about what it may mean from a change of process and what that may mean from a, a change in depreciation expense. 
any data gaps that may be identified. Uh, I want to point out that it's not the guidelines created those data gaps, but uh, implementation of the guidelines uh, may actually draw some of those previous challenges that have been there for a while to the fore, and uh, there'll be a need to address those. So importantly, this guideline is not a substitute for organisational business processes. Rather, organisations need to have their own business processes around how they'll, they'll do various business functions. So implementation of this guideline is likely to lead to some level of change in those business processes, so they'll need to be updated. The level of impact on that, in that change will be very much dependent on each individual organisation's current uh, practices, uh, both from an asset management and financial management perspective. So it's hard to be, there's no one size fits all here. It's a case-by-case it's a -case basis. That said, there are a range of potential impacts uh, that may apply to a whole range of organisations and they're listed there. Uh, if you want more detail on those, I uh, refer you to section nine of the supporting research report uh, I mentioned earlier. To give a high level overview of those relative impacts, it's going to depend how aligned your current practices are to what's uh, in the prescriptive guidance material. Um, this particular matrix structure just shows those eight uh, impact categories, splits them uh, to even higher level, four of them related to financial management reporting, four of them related to asset management functions, and just shows uh, where organisations can expect uh, to have some of those impacts. If you do go to the research report and look at the detail, it has uh, another couple of levels of detail about potential impacts that may prove uh, useful to you. But again, the level of impact will depend on the current practices within a given organisation. One of those eight items I just want to draw out because it, it was raised quite a number of times by the Project Working Group is that there is an accounting standard, AASB 108, uh, whereby the uh, change of approach needs to be categorised into one of two things, change of policy or a change in estimate. Now, one of those is more onerous than the other. It's ultimately going to be based on an auditor assessment of the changes uh, and obviously it will be organisation specific. That said, the guideline does provide uh, some direction, if you like, as to uh, where we would expect uh, a likely outcome to land uh, following that auditor assessment. And we anticipate the likely outcome would be that it would be a change in estimate, which is the less onerous of the two determinations. The reasons for that sequential logic is even with implementation of this guideline, we're dealing with assets in uh, an environment that's not, that, not an active and liquid environment. Um, we're applying a fair value approach using a current replacement cost methodology. That's not going to change. The change in componentization um, is unlikely to have a significant impact on the valuation approach is the contention and therefore unlikely to have a material impact on the organisation's financial statements. Now, if those three points prove true, the first one definitely will, uh, two and three subject to auditor assessment, uh, if they prove true, then you'd expect the auditor to give a change of assessment, uh, sorry, a change in estimate determination. So one of the last things I've got here is a hypothetical case study. Now that's in attachment E of the guidelines. I've got about half a dozen slides here. As I said earlier, just to try and give that uh, human feel to the process you'll go through. 
So the collaborative effort to apply the item test, um, that's step one of that for those four steps. We've created four characters. There's Joe from finance, Jane from engineering, there's Jack from capital works, just because he's been there forever and knows uh, a lot about the organization, and Jerry from planning, because he knows the information management systems and, and the data associated. That uh, little image you show there is related to the hypothetical case study. It's in the guidelines. And it just shows the outcome of filling out uh, uh, what is attachment C. And that attachment C uh, relates to all those other components of the guideline which we spoke about earlier. The data gaps, uh, there's more detail in the hypothetical case study. You can see some little uh, red highlight there. They're the, the data gaps uh, in this particular hypothetical. There's a bit more detail in the, uh, in the case study. Now, after you go through that process, that process that I mentioned before could take anywhere from a, a week to three months. Um, after you go through that, there, there's a need for some business decisions. And I've just given a few examples, again, straight out of the hypothetical case study. It's going to depend on your own organisation. Here's some things that you might come across. Uh, asset management needs within an organisation uh, may result in an alternative to the guideline recommended minimum. In the example, in, uh, in this case, road barriers and pathways, the guideline effectively comes up with uh, the need for a minimum requirement of network assets, but the organisation, whoops, too far, the organisation decides to uh, effectively adopt a full inventory approach because they've already decided to collect that information for asset management purposes. Second of what I think is five uh, examples here, an average weighted asset approach may be adopted for multiple asset types in an asset subclass. So in this example, the total gross replacement cost percentage for the roadside asset subclass at level two was 5.9%. As per the previous slide, they decided to go with a simple approach for two of the asset types within the roadside subclass, those asset types being um, uh, road barriers and pathways. And by treating those two separately, everything else that was left in roadside only totaled 3.2%. So you've got a top-down process in this item test, but you can then start to roll it up again and effectively say that the remainder, remaining asset types can be treated as a, um, an average weighted asset for the remainder of those asset uh, asset types within roadside. Some asset types may be broken into asset subtypes. In this example, um, uh, Abdul uh, is the ITS manager within this uh, hypothetical organisation. He's already got a, a great uh, subtype breakdown that is beyond the detail within the Austroads data standard or the Austroads computerisation guideline. Some of those uh, ITS assets already have a full inventory set, but uh, some of them don't. And Abdul happens to have been asking for uh, funds to break the, uh, to collect that data for some time. As going through this process, it was acknowledged that perhaps we should proceed with Abdul's recommendation, but we've just said, let's go with a 20% uh, sample data. We're not gonna go get 100% of the data like Abdul initially wanted. This process has said, let's go with a minimum sample approach that decided on 20% as a starting point. Complex assets need to identify which components will be adopted. In this example, it was identified that bridges are a complex asset for this organisation. For valuation purposes, they decided the components would be superstructure and substructure and stop there. 
The reason being is that they have a program of going around and having deck replacements. So therefore the superstructure seen as having a different useful life to the substructure. Now the particular example in the guideline actually break it down, breaks it down a step further. It also has footings, but this organisation decided we're not going to run with that example. We believe that footings and substructure have a similar use for life. We're going to combine them. What I think is the last example, uh, network asset approach may be adopted in consideration of functional road classifications. So in this example, open drains and curb and channel are two asset types. And this hypothetical organization decided, well, we're actually gonna combine them into one asset type called roadside drainage. That's okay, they can combine them because they're in the same level two asset subclass. Recognize as a network asset, modern day equivalent for each functional road classification. So for local roads, for collector roads, etc., whatever their functional road classifications may be, they decide to apply a modern day equivalent to each one of those. So the hypothetical case study uh, then goes a step further. All those management decisions, and there are five examples, there's, there's a number of others in Appendix E, sorry, Attachment E, um, but then it goes on to talk about the next implementation stage of, hey, let's go talk to our top management. So the Chief Financial Officer, Barry, and the Executive Director of Engineering, Bob, they say, well, we love your idea, but go and talk to more people. So uh, our finance uh, manager goes off and talks to the auditor and our engineering manager goes off and talks to the works managers to make sure everybody's on board. Ultimately, uh, what it talks about is a 12 month implementation plan. And of the various bits and pieces they decided they needed to do, they broke it up into three key categories. They need to update the capitalization financial evaluation business processes. They need to map their asset management registers, of which they had three, to their fixed finance register. So they didn't try and create one um, to, to achieve a purpose, they just decided mapping was enough. And the last one, there was some desktop collection and some field-based data collection to be done to uh, correct some data gaps. Ultimately, uh, with some discussion with the auditor, they decide to implement this in a staged approach whereby roads, roadside and drainage asset subclasses were done in the first financial year and then the remaining asset subclasses in the subsequent financial year. So look, I hope that hypothetical case study, when you have a read of it, uh, does really um, paint a, a realistic picture of what many organisations will go through with an implementation process. Finally, a little bit about benefits. From an individual organisation uh, perspective, there are a range of benefits there. Now, to be absolutely fair, uh, an individual organisation who has already chosen to uh, come up with a single asset classification structure, which is used across asset management, financial management and financial reporting, may have already realised most of these benefits. Uh, organisations that have not decided to uh, have such an integrated approach can perhaps uh, realise some of these benefits. Importantly, the wider road sector, uh, even where an individual organisation may have recognised some of these benefits already, they won't necessarily be contributing to the wider road sector benefits uh, unless that consistent terminology and harmonised approach is, uh, is adopted. Uh, and that's uh, what we're really trying to achieve uh, uh, in the bigger picture. So that brings me to the end of the webinar content. Uh, it's now time where I'll hand over to Eliz and Andrew Golding to take any questions and answer any queries that you may have.
thank you for listening. Thanks, Gary, for presenting. And thank you for everyone that sent through their question. So the first question is, can we have an elaborate checklist of the asset breakdown structure for traffic signals with identified outcomes from various collected data, both for the engineering and design versus operational and financial benefits? Uh, certainly, um, we haven't gone into that level of detail within the current project. Uh, we may have additional levels of detail within the Austroads data standard, um, but really it's up to each individual organisation as to whether or not they'll um, obtain that level of benefit um, in terms of a detailed uh, asset hierarchy at the, um, the component level, basically. Um, certainly when we're considering the uh, objectives of this project, um, we came into it with the view initially of having a very prescriptive set of guidelines and potentially for some asset types down to the asset component level. Uh, but ultimately because of the, um, the different levels of complexity within different organisations, the item um, approach was seen to be the best way of providing a good mix between prescriptive guidance at that um, asset subclass level through to being able to provide um, good direction on the approach to componentization uh, beyond that. Great, thanks for answering that one. Another question is from a network management strategy, what is the asset breakdown and operational breakdown? Yeah, well certainly, um, once again, the, the asset breakdown as part of your network strategy um, would typically follow um, your asset management investment approach, so, but that needs to be aligned to your the service objectives of the organisation. So um, while that can vary for most road agencies, a, um, there's a, a, an approach that uh, is structured around managing pavements and surfaces and uh, related infrastructure either to provide a level of service related to the to the standard of the road or the um, managing the operational uh, components. So obviously from an asset manager's perspective, we're wanting to get best value out of our infrastructure and a combined um, approach that sees most effective use of your assets um, uh, through be better operation uh, related, uh, you know, it's in combination with the network approach. Thanks Andrew for answering that. So the second question we received from Jennifer, so have all states committed to implement the guidelines? Yes, yeah, so part of the, um, the implementation approach that we've discussed through the uh, Austroads Assets Task Force and the um, recognition through the publication of this, um, the guide line as a um, Austroads report, research report, um, is effectively providing that, uh, that commitment to implement. Now obviously there's timing constraints uh, for each organisation uh, related to their, their valuation review cycle. Um, what we have also done at the Austroads Assets Task Force level is made a commitment to um, 
uh, report on the outcome of the process. So that initial run through of the item test approach and the worksheet that's produced through that process will, um, most organisations will be able to undertake that in the next, um, you know, over the next 12 months at least, and we'll be sharing the results of that and discussing any of the uh, implications of that um, each member agencies have um, encountered as they've gone through that approach and then determined um, what their implementation strategy will be beyond that. Great, thanks for answering. So we've received a question from Jeff and he said, this guide looks good. I appreciate the scope is road infrastructure. From your experience, could it be applicable to other types of local government infrastructure? Uh, well, certainly there's um, there'd be some additional work to um, go through to enable that to happen. Um, certainly from um, the Austroads perspective, we were um, very much aligning it to road infrastructure, obviously, and the Austroads data standard. Uh, but uh, certainly recognise that local government have a much broader range of assets that they're managing. Um, and uh, in in theory, certainly um, this approach could be taken up at a um, at a national level uh, to provide further guidance um, to local governments across a, a broader range of assets. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. <coughs> Next question is: How is road segmentation taken into account in the asset hierarchy? Uh, so. The actual segmentation is um, not not really considered as part of a part of a I guess limitation or, or constraint within the guidelines. So uh, most agencies will have a segmentation approach uh, for both their financial reporting and uh, their asset management needs. Um, it would be great if 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 those segments are aligned. Um, but we don't provide any prescriptive guidance on segmentation as such. Thanks for answering. Next question is, how does a prescribed data structure align with state government model budget, which place drainage and structures such as bridges into a separate asset class? <clears throat> um, so I guess, um, if you have structures in a separate asset class, and we, we are saying that they are a separate uh, subclass, uh, drainage structures are, are typically, uh, most organisations will have major culverts um, as to be considered within that structures subclass and minor, minor culverts as um, uh, part of uh, roadside. Um, I get clarification on that from Gary if he's, uh, if he's typing away there. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, sorry, main, minor culverts as part of the drainage subclass. So if if, if the bulk, if agencies' budgets um, are combined for, for both minor culverts and major culverts, um, I'd suggest that there there probably needs to be a separation in the um, the prioritisation in any case from an asset management perspective. So 
while um, while we're reporting them under different subclasses, I guess, from a financial perspective, um, there would naturally be a, a breakup of that budget at the asset management level would be my call. Thank you, Andrew. And in, in asset structures, it does not define about road service, i.e. where motorway road may differ with arterial road. Can it be included into asset structures? Uh, so uh, I guess that's part of the um, the functional classification of your network um, and uh, that in many respects comes down then to your valuation model. So um, where these guidelines are, have focused very clearly on the, um, the asset type rather than the, the functional classification. So um, within your own um, uh, structure or hierarchy, you would need to be able to make that um, connection within your own system. Thanks, Andrew. And the last question is, does the organisation need to follow the guideline if the business process suggests a different asset breakdown structure? So um, the, the preference is that they would follow the guideline, but if there are clear reasons why um, why you'd make a different choice. We've stressed uh, in a number of areas in the guidelines that um, what we would like to see then is disclosure in the financial statements that um, you've made a, a, a choice to report it in a different manner and, uh, and therefore disclose that as part of the, the overall reporting. Um, it, without knowing the specific circumstances it's hard to make a more specific answer I guess. Yeah, no problems. Thanks Andrew. So that is all the questions that we've received. We've received some comments and I'll feed them through to Gary and Andrew so thank you for sending those through. Before we sign off uh, I'd like to let you know of the upcoming webinars that we have coming up. So we do have a webinar next Thursday which is on Guide to Project Delivery Part 5, Road Construction Quality Assurance. And then the following week we have a webinar on operations of automated heavy vehicles in remote and regional areas. We have three presenters in this session including an international speaker from University of California Berkeley and to read more about these webinars and to register please go on our website you can see on the slide. For those who aren't aware, the recordings of our webinars are available to watch on our podcast app. To subscribe to our app, simply search for Osroads on your mobile device. I'd also like to announce that Osroads has partnered with RMS New South Wales to bid to host the World Road Congress in Sydney in 2023. So this event is an opportunity to showcase some of our groundbreaking innovation and play an active role in shaping the future of our global community. And to everyone who joined us today, we hope you found this session valuable and helpful. Thank you for participating. You can contact us if you do have the further inquiries. But as we close this session, we appreciate your feedback on the session. So please fill out a survey after the webinar. And thank you, Andrew, Andrew for answering everyone's questions today. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Liz. Great to be here. Thank you. Goodbye for now.